Welcome to Higher Calling Wildlife with award-winning wildlife journalist Chester Moore. From deep investigations to interviews with top experts, Higher Calling Wildlife is the place to get informed and inspired about all things wildlife. All right, this is Chester Moore with my compadre, Andrew Austin, and we're here at the Hunt Fish Podcast Summit at the Warren Ranch. Hunt Fish Podcast Summit is the vision of my blood brother, Derek York. It's the third year, having a great time out here, and uh, we're going to talk with a, a group of uh, wildlife professionals, wildlife advocates, wildlife and conservation lovers about habitat, and um, we all know whether you're a snook or you're a mountain lion or a bighorn or a whitetail you got to have habitat to live in you got to have a lot of habitat quality habitat and i think that's an issue that we all agree needs a lot more attention so what i like to do is just go around the table and um i want to ask this question what is the habitat in your realm of work or interest that concerns you most what habitat issue concerns you the most right now we're going to start with andrew here okay and before i even say anything about that i, I want to say that you know, habitat is one thing that everybody that's interested in wildlife can get around. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of disagreements about how to manage predators or mm-hmm. uh, climate or like various politically charged topics out there. Mm-hmm. But like habitat is the one unifying thing that everybody should get around. Yeah. But, um, you know, growing up in Southeast Texas, um, the, the plant community that has disappeared the most is uh, the coastal prairies. So I worry a lot yeah. about grasslands mm-hmm. and the species associated with grasslands. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very diverse ecosystems. They support gra- uh, grassland birds, mm-hmm. um, a lot of different snakes, and uh, you know smaller critters. Um, but as just as far as uh, an ecosystem that is uh, that is basically endangered, and where I'm from, uh, I, I worry a lot about our loss of grasslands, and um, I always look for ways to contribute to uh, the, you know the coastal prairie conservancies and mm-hmm. conservancy and other organizations that are working in. Coastal, coastal prairie conservation. Um, so that's, you know, that's what I often think about mm-hmm. for, for my local stuff. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for, for me in my realm of work, so my master's thesis is re- in regards to wild turkeys and entomology. Um, and with wild turkeys, they require such a mosaic of habitat types. I mean, they require brooding habitat, nesting habitat, roosting habitat, um, and just, you know, regular space to play. And we could have a discussion about each and every one of those and how they're declining from the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I want to bring special attention to um, riparian systems because mm-hmm. that in particular has it's really come across my desk in a lot of my work as far as turkeys go because uh, these Rio Grande wild turkeys really require these riparian systems. And there's such a small limiting factor for them in a lot of their um, broad range and it's a very sensitive habitat type that's really under uh, a lot of uh, damages from whether it be agriculture or invasive species like wild pigs. Um, they're just entirely diff- unique systems that support all kinds of different wildlife species uh, in, from the fish in the water to the insects in the air to you know, turkeys in the trees. It's crazy how much wildlife and biomass is found in these systems. So it's all worth preserving. Um, and it's all connected. So if you have pigs that are dumping their nutrients into the water system, that's gonna affect everything from the fish to the birds to uh, the vegetation communities in those areas. So 
that for me is a, of a special interest in mm -hmm. needing to preserve those kind of watersheds and habitat types. Um, easy ways to do that is, you know, contacting Parks and Wildlife and asking about what kind of management plans are uh, in the area or talking to your local biologists. So there's some easy, easy things to do for landowners, uh, private landowners in these areas that um, can really um, turn the tide and the decline for this type of habitat. Okay. Jake? I think there's a lot of different habitat issues that we face on a, like more specific categories such as like you know lack of fire in certain areas mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. lack of mm -hmm. you know you know timber harvesting or whatever but w one broad uh, issue that I think overall we face worldwide um, is scale. With mm -hmm. any kind of habitat, you've got to have a certain scale. And I think that's a little bit better perspective than just saying fragmentation. Because that tends to be a lot of what people say is, oh, habitat's fragmented. But I think scale is a lot, a lot better term because, you know, something that's fragmented for a, for a mouse is different than fragmented for a whitetail. Yeah. And, but with both of those, you've got to have scale to a habitat. Mm -hmm. And so within this, you know, growing society and, and growing population across the globe, maintaining scale of a habitat is important. Wow, very interesting. Interesting. Yeah, man. Good stuff. Kind of in my neighborhood, as far as sheep go, it's uh, exotics is okay. the big one. Yeah. You know, right now, everybody's kind of focused on the disease problem in wild sheep, and rightly so. And with the exotics in Texas with uh, Audad yeah. in down in our sheep country. Yeah, that's a big problem with disease, but what they don't realize is those audad have been wreaking havoc for years mm -hmm. on habitat. Mm -hmm. they're, they're very hardy animals. They go from browsers to grazers to browsers, and they'll eat whatever's around, mm -hmm. whereas the, those bighorn sheep won't do that. Hmm. And there's a lot of studies that have shown that we've sponsored down there with collaring studies where the best sheep habitat Audad will move in there and displace the sheep out of that good habitat, and then those numbers start to start to dwindle. Mm -hmm. There's some good photos that Parks and Wildlife, Forlan Hernandez especially, has taken of shrubbing, of overbrowsing, and different things of some of those plant species down there that mm -hmm. are just getting hammered by the just volume and volume of Audad. I think that's an interesting look in terms of uh, we think of habitat like loss, and he mentioned scale but degradation uh, by exotics is uh, a growing all around the planet in different places. And this is a, definitely a prime example in Texas. Turner? Um, yeah, one, one habitat or a couple habitat concerns I have in, in Southern Florida um, are the Everglades uh, National Park and the estuaries surrounding that. I mean, there's so, there's so much nutrients going through that system um, that kind of overwhelms the, the filtering purpose of that estuary. Um, and it's leading to large blooms in the water. Mm -hmm. It's basically yeah. suffocating fish yeah. and pushing them out of the area. Mm -hmm. um, particular fish have, you know, problem with their breeding grounds. Um, mm -hmm. And then there's also, you know, the, uh, the turtle grass problem that I'm concerned about in Mosquito Lagoon. It mm -hmm. used to be an incredible redfish fishery with yeah. very large bulls mm -hmm. all around and, and you're seeing that dwindling um, because of the turtle grass. So those mm -hmm. are probably the two 
yep. I'm most concerned with. All right, Kenny? Yeah, so being fisheries and being involved in, you know, a private biologist company, we work with management clients on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. And so one of the problems of habitat that we face is trying to manage an older fisheries hmm. so you're coming in there it's been there for you know 20 plus years and then you're having to put habitat in because that lake doesn't have any habitat so that's probably one of the biggest problems that we face is when we get contacted we go out there for a consult and then realize that you know the lake doesn't have any habitat in it so then we come in and go out there and map it and try to figure out the best habitat plan mm -hmm. for that lake you know, um, it's interesting hearing everybody has a different thing and there's so many different concerns that we have. And uh, I have a bunch of them. There are two that are always on my radar. Number one is the Texas coast and um, the dredging and channelization issues with huge, huge tankers and LNG ships coming in. They're, they're making much deeper channels, much wider channels, sediments everywhere, changing uh, the clarity of the water that's going to impact seagrass. Erosion issues, that's a big, big concern of mine. Um, and also um, out west um, and even I'd say also in the Texas Hill Country is the people who have discovered that living in California is not sustainable financially um, out, and out that part of the world. And also the loss of water in those areas compounded with the people now more interested in living in beautiful places than ever, just the development that's happening. I mean, Austin, Texas to San Antonio is basically one city. I mean, it's it's going to be that way pretty soon. And so you look in areas around Colorado and even in places in Montana, people are moving around. I know Turner can speak on Bozeman growing a lot. Our good friend Gray Thornton always posts on his from uh, the Wild Sheep Foundation is don't come here. The weather's terrible every single day. Don't move to Montana. Uh, but uh, I think that that's, those are just real concerns of mine because I travel places every year and I go back every year and it looks different every year. So that's something that um, that's a big concern. Now, in terms of uh, uh, some actions you think that the individual can take to get involved in these particular things or maybe just educate themselves and figure out where they want to go. Andrew, where do you think that uh, in this particular with these grasslands and prairies that people can get involved? And I guess the easiest way is to uh, get involved with conservancies, donate yep. to conservancies, mm -hmm. um, or volunteer with conservancies. I think uh, land conservancies are extremely valuable yeah. um, in conserving land and, and managing land right. You know, just because you buy a piece of property before the urban developer doesn't mean it's, it's going to support, the, you know, robust populations of wildlife yeah still has to be managed we, we got to get fire back on the landscape to restore our rangelands yeah there's all this work that has to be done so um, first learning about our habitat problems and understanding that you know especially in texas we have issues coming our way as our population is projected to double in the mm -hmm. next 50 years mm -hmm. and uh, it's really important that we get land under conservation uh, somehow and that's some, th some of that's through pri private land easements some of it's through you know um, state and federal agencies um, but just learning about it and um, trying to identify local um, organizations that you can get involved with and really uh, connecting yourself to your local ecosystems where you can have the biggest impact i think very good joe yeah i completely agree you gotta understand something before you can reform it and um, especially for like riparian habitats, you know, there are lots of avenues for uh, understanding the watershed, like the Llano River system. There's mm -hmm. all kinds of management plans online uh, that people can go look up. And then 
there's watershed alliances, there's um, Texas Parks and Wildlife Department has a really good uh, uh, part of their website that talks about river conservation and riparian corridors. Uh, there's all that information online that people can go look at. And then uh, I would also encourage people to go and actually see one of these systems in person, uh, like mm -hmm. at the Llano River State Park, which is you know, one of the most beautiful state parks I think this state has uh, as far as you know, getting people connected to um, in a beautiful river system like yeah, that. So, sure. and it's always available. All right. I think having worked in the private landowner sector quite a bit, uh, at least in the forestry side of things in East Texas, one thing I would say is for someone looking to get involved or, or really help out on the habitat side is you need to understand the value of what you have before you do anything. Mm. And a lot of people just want to come in and automatically change things or do something to make it feel like they're doing something okay. for their landscape. Whereas reality is either messing up something or creating it, you know, harder to bring back to what it was. And they might have something great before they even do anything. Wow. The prescription might be do nothing, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> which is honestly an underrated habitat or, or a management prescription is don't do anything just because within all these things it takes time secession mm -hmm. takes time this process takes time so you could be at that phase during the process of, of just let it grow mm -hmm. um so it really understanding the value of that habitat for what your goal is first before just doing something wow. so. one way to get involved is just like what you guys have said parks and wildlife probably the biggest resource mm -hmm. for wildlife habitat in the state. Mm -hmm. uh, other organizations like ours, Texas Bighorn Society, we're, that's what we do is work on the habitat for sheep. Mm -hmm. uh, we also work with private landowners. And those private landowners, they're really engaged yeah. in this problem. Mm -hmm. And they're always looking for help with different things. Yep, yep, yep. Turner? Um, on the Everglades, problem um it, it really narrows down to the legislation mm -hmm. as being passed there mm. um you know the best organization in my opinion is captains for clean water um that you know really leans on the um the guides around that area in order to provide accurate information to the people making these decisions um, and educate them um, and get the public on their side through uh, really entertaining films um, mm -hmm. that are super educational and really highlight the importance of this area because the Everglades is, is far more important than just the South Florida. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, on the on the Montana thing, uh, that's kind of funny because, you know, everyone in Montana, um, it's really easy to, to hate on Californians, but, you know, I understand. I mean, in California, it's just <laughs> California, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I understand, though. I mean, it's a beautiful place. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a place I've called home for, for seven, eight years. Um, but it, it's definitely growing fast and, yeah. and unsustainably. Um, you see a lot of apartments coming up. Um, which are just super ugly and there's a lot of um, you know a lot more people in the mountains that aren't necessarily educated on responsible hiking even yeah. you know leaving trash and stuff um, but you know I understand why they're coming there you know sure I'm a transplant too yeah. um, and so uh, I think it 
I think education is, is key on mm-hmm. not just like, here's the things you need to do, yep. but here's why you need to do them. All right, Kenyon? So private lake, lake management is a little bit different since we're not really talking to audiences. It's just really, you know, one-on-one client, okay. mm-hmm. client to me. Um, so kind of, as Jake mentioned, it would just be goals to go back to what does that client want? What are their goals for that lake? Um, education is a huge part because sometimes they don't realize how much habitat is important in their lake. And then to go off their goals, you know, do they want to be a trophy bass, crappie, so, so, so. But then, you know, you get those goals and then you, you can, you know, figure out the habitation when you get the goals. Because habitation for different species, it's completely different. So education and then just kind of knowing what the people want knowing what the client wants. Well, I think the interesting thing about what you do is you can almost transpose that into bigger fisheries, mm-hmm. you know, like, and say like, well, if you see this happening in your, you know, 10 acre lake you have in your property, think about the reservoir you fish and, you know, you're engaged in habitat here, but to get that fishery that used to be in that lake, the habitat was great. So if we could get people maybe more active and, you know, figuring out how we can do in our public waterways and things like that. Just one final question. This is something that always interests me when I've asked this to people in different ways. Um, What is the most beautiful piece of habitat you've ever laid your eyes on? And what did you see there that made you think it was awesome? The most beautiful place I've ever seen in Texas was the coastal grasslands at at the East Foundation Ranch in Port Mansfield, Texas. Mm -hmm. It is this dynamic grassland with migrating dunes and sable palms and live oak moths. That is the most beautiful place I've ever seen. Wow. Very cool. I have a lot of places that are near and yeah, dear me to my too, heart. Man. Me too, brother. So this is a tough question. Um, so they pay me the big bucks. <laughs> but um, I do think that I've spent, the most time I've spent has definitely been in South Texas brush country. Mm-hmm. Uh, that definitely holds a very special place in my heart mm-hmm. just for seeing all the different diversity and wildlife species that inhabit that area and just um you know some of the beautiful colorful birds and the the habitat as it changes over the seasons so i think that's what's really special to me is like when you can be in a place and you can you're in a place long enough that you can observe those minute changes in the environment as with the seasons with the animals so that's why it's a really special place to me Jake's thinking deeply here, all the awesome places he's seen. What do you got, brother? Yeah, no, I, I'm like Joe. That's that's a hard one to pick. I, I mean, I've again, I've been blessed to go a lot of different places and you know, to overseas and such. But you know, when you ask that question, just the, for some reason, the first thing that popped in my mind was a longleaf pine savanna mm. in uh, South Mississippi. It's a it's a pretty place. Very cool. Yeah, that is kind of hard to narrow it down to just one. Yeah. Probably for me would be the Alaska Range in Alaska. Wow. On my very first sheep hunt was a doll sheep hunt. I don't know if I was lightheaded from oxygen deprivation from <laughs> climbing or it was just really that cool, but I sat there for a while and just wow. like, well, these sheep, and I was kind of like, yeah, yeah could, whatever, couldn't right. be bothered by it. I was just kind of taking it all in. It was pretty cool. Man, that's, that's, that's what it's about right there. Ooh. <laughs> this is tough. Um, I have so many places that are so near and dear to my heart. Um, I mean, locally, 
Um, I don't. I don't know if I could pick between Glacier National Park, Yellowstone National Park, and the Grand Teton National Park. Um, all those are just pristine. Uh, I mean, you go in there, Yellowstone National Park, obviously for the wildlife, um, the sheer amount. But you know, the Everglades is also outstanding. But one of the most untouched regions and probably beautiful regions that I've ever seen was um, probably Christmas Island in the Republic of Kiribati. Um, in the Pacific, it's just. A, I was about to ask you, where is the Republic of Kiribati? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. it's like a three-hour plane ride from Hawaii, so it's in the Whoa, middle of the. But ocean. it is fine. Um, and um, yeah, very untouched. Uh, uh, really, the only civilization there was like a runway that was a refueling station in World War Two. So it's really it's it's really untouched, and the coral reefs there are just pristine. Man, I want to go there. <laughs> it's got good bow fishing. I really need to go there now. <laughs> All right. Uh, mine would be a artificial fish habitat structure called mossback. Okay. And when you come across one of those in the water, you know, you know, you're about to catch something on it. This is a more practical kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, like habitat thing. Like all the scenery is yeah, great with the sheep and the whatever. But big fish over I can catch here. a yeah. on that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what y'all are doing, but. Yeah, I'm trying to be poetic. Leave us alone. <laughs> Moss back all the way, though. All right. For me, I was sitting here thinking about it, and I was like, um, Trail Ridge Road in Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, because the first time I went there, about four and a half years ago, I had photographed a Merriam's turkey, which was a cinnamon face Merriam's turkey, crazy, a moose, all right, an elk, and then when we got to the very top of it, uh, there was a marmot standing there, a pika, and my first bighorn sheep I ever saw in my entire life up close. And I'm looking at a frozen, because it was June, it was still frozen alpine lake. And I'm going, holy smokes. This is absolutely beautiful. But it like, represented biodiversity to me. Like, beautiful, but there was a lot of stuff working together. And that was really exciting. But I still like her answer the best, I think. Was... <laughs> well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for um, being with us. And... Thanks to Derek for hosting Huntfish Podcast Summit and having a fun and I think really enlightening conversation about habitat. Very good stuff. Thanks for listening to Higher Calling Wildlife. Find us on Facebook at Higher Calling Wildlife, at The Chester Moore on Instagram, and our blog at HigherCalling.net. To contact Chester, email Chester at ChesterMoore.com. <laughs>